Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. I just flew in last night, and uh, we're all getting ready for Passover. Our minds are already going towards that. But when I gave a list of topics, um, Shmuley uh, asked me to speak about this one today. So I, I'll introduce it this way. Um, when I was a little kid, the first thing I knew about my father was that he um, was a doctor. You know, and I was very proud of that. My dad would... Uh, you know, come home and he would give us some of his stuff to play with. He had his lab coat, you know, a stethoscope. We could listen to each other, those ear inspector things and the, the reflex testing hammer and all those cute things. And we would play doctor. Right? It's a fun thing to do. And, and kids, are you a doctor? You're making me laugh. My dad was a clinical professor of peds at NYU. Really? All three sons were docs. Wow. Well, none of my dad's three kids became docs, but... We, we all loved that. And after all, kids, the first professional they probably know is a doctor, you know, and so uh, it was meaningful to us. But one time my mother said something that kind of frightened me. Um, she said something about my dad practicing medicine. And I'm like, what? <laughs> He's just practicing? <laughs> Do his patients now? <laughs> and I was really alarmed by that expression, which made it sound like he was sort of making it up on the run and he wasn't really competent. And, you know, as I got a little older, I realized that 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 concept was really a bit of a conceit that the professions have, that you practice law, you practice medicine, you practice anything important that is a kind of action which requires further learning. We've continuing medical education, we've continued legal education. And so practicing is what we call something which is really important and which requires constant attention and improvement. There's never perfect practice of medicine. There's always something more to learn. There's always a new diagnostic tool. There's always a new therapy that can be considered. And so after some time, I started to think, well, that's really what we're doing with Judaism. We're practicing Judaism. Uh, We have a very rigorous aspirational religion. It's set up to try to challenge us to live a life that is a little bit more you know, altruistic, a little bit more committed, a little bit more insightful, a little bit kinder, you know, all these things um, than we would otherwise. And it sets goals for us which may not feel realistic, right? And yet it sets us these goals and we try. And it doesn't assume that we're going to succeed. It assumes actually that we're going to fail. And that's why we have Yom Kippur. That's why actually every Amidah, every morning, afternoon, evening, has a Salach Lanu Avinu Kichatanu. Forgive us, God, for we have sinned. And so aspiration and then forgiveness and sort of renewal, aspiration, failure, Right? That is the cycle of Jewish spirituality. It's very unpopular today. We live in a time of affirmation. Whatever a person thinks, does, is fine. Who am I to judge, to quote the Pope, right? Who am I to judge, right? And Judaism is sort of tempted by that, right? And uh, I will say that I, too, am always looking for ways to f- help people find their place. I'm not interested in making people feel guilty, right? But I also feel that there's something that we can lose when it's always affirmation and there's never a challenge, right? And so the mitzvot are largely about challenging ourselves, um, challenging ourselves to have a way of, of thinking, of relating to other people, of imagining um, what God wants of us. So 
the text for today is it's called Practicing Judaism Flawed but Fulfilling Expeditions on the Path of Torah. Right? And what I thought I would do to start with is to help, ask you to help me name categories of the mitzvot. You've heard that there are 613 commandments, right? Um, where did that idea come from, 613 commandments? Anyone know? Any thoughts? So one thing, I'm not going to use a blackboard, is you've heard the expression Torah tziva lanu Moshe. Torah tziva lanu Moshe. Torah, the Torah, tziva, was commanded to us by Moses. Right? The word Torah, um, taf, vav, resh, he, can be turned into a number. Right? So taf is 400 and resh is 200, so 600. And then vav is 6 and he is 5, 11. The 611 commandments. Moses commanded us the 611 commandments. But hold on, there are 613. Right, so one of the early Midrashim says, well, actually, when the children of Israel stood at Sinai, they only were able to hear two commandments directly from God. Anochi Hashem Elokechem, I am the Lord your God who took you up out of the land of Egypt, and you shall not have any other gods before me. If you read Exodus chapter 20 carefully, you'll notice that those two are written in first person from God right, and second person to the children of Israel. God speaking to Israel. After that, it switches into a third person. Right? And so this Midrash is playing on numerology, but it's also a close reading of that text. And it leads to a rather radical concept, which is that the children of Israel actually got two mitzvot directly from God. After that, everything was mediated through Moses. And here we have the idea of 613. Um, I say it's a radical concept because um, in Exodus, the people are kind of freaked out. They say, Daber ata imanu namut. You should speak with us so that we don't die. Because there was a fear, a prevalent fear, that speaking directly with God would be so overwhelming right, that a person would actually die. Right? It was incompatible with being alive. And so we have this idea that all of the mitzvot that we have were actually mediated by Moses, except for the ones that are really about God's presence. So the people of Israel entered into covenant relationship with God, but all the rest, all the details, they got through Moses. Right? Which means that mediation has always been part of revelation. It's never been that all of the Torah. Okay, so let's say we have 613. Can you guys tell me some divisions, that, some breakdowns of how the 613 divide, like binaries, yes? Right, so the mitzvot aseh, the positives, right, are said to be 248. Why do they get this idea of 248? Again, in, in numerology, rem, resh, mem, chet, ramach, right, is your ramach ivarim, your 248 body parts. Now, how did the rabbis come up with 248 body parts? I don't know. They were counting, you know, obviously all the bones separately and, and the organs separately, the teeth, I guess, and, and everything. And the Midrash, they said, why would there be 248 positive commandments? It's because every limb of the body is saying, do a mitzvah with me. So with your tongue, you can pray and praise and do all things. With your hands, you can do justice and tzedakah. Um, for men, with your foreskin, you can do brit milah. There, you can do something with every part of your body. Right? Saying to him, it's, so what's the midrash for 365? What is 365? The year, is that what you said? No. All right, but that's what you meant. All right, the days of the year. So 365 days of the solar year. Eh, we Jews don't really keep by the solar year. We keep by the, the lunar year, which is 354 days. But, um, but the 365 days actually does have a, a Torah connection because Hanoch is an early figure, Enoch, uh, in the Torah who we're told lived 365 years and then he was no longer because God took him, right? which means he didn't die somehow. And the rabbi said, 365? He must have invented the solar calendar, you know? Um, so what's the connection to mitzvot? Every day of the year says, don't do a transgression today, right? It's interesting, the rabbis are playing on the solar year, which is not of great Jewish significance. So that is one binary, negatives and positives. Right? 
Does someone have another binary, um, another way of dividing up the mitzvot? Yeah? So some mitzvot, and actually a very large number, the 300, sorry, the 613 mitzvot, are only applicable under certain conditions. One of them is that there's a temple. So all the, like next week, I know you probably in Arizona are doing a korban Pesach. You know, are you doing that? Do you slaughter a calf, you know, to start Passover? Oh, sure, right? So the most important mitzvah of, of Passover is the, the sacrificial lamb of, the, of the, Pas, the Paschal lamb, which we're not doing. We're told that if you don't eat that, you're cut off from the Jewish people. So this is a major mitzvah. It's like brit milah, you know, abandoning brit milah. We've abandoned the Korban Pesach, but what can we do? There is no temple. Um, and many, many other mitzvot associated with the temple. Um, and not only with the temple itself, but with... Um, the priesthood, right? So a lot of the mitzvot in the Torah have to do with tithing. Um, if you're a farmer, then you take some of your grain and you give it to the priest or to the Levite. Um, the laws of the pilgrimage and, and many other commandments that have to do with that stage. Then there's another class of mitzvot, which you call mitzvot atzliyot ba'ar. It's mitzvot that you can only do in the land of Israel. Like the first fruits belong to the temple, to God. You're supposed to give them to the priest. Um, the taking of tithes, um, even some would say the leaving the corners of the field for the poor. Uh, a lot of these mitzvot are specifically connected to the land. So you could have mitzvot hatzliyot bar, it's ones that are land specific, and mitzvot which could be done that are tzliyot baguf, they have to do with your body wherever you are. Good, right? Yet another binary. Um, yes? Okay. Right, so what you're referring to is in Hebrew we say mitzvot ben adam lemakom, Commandments that are between a person and their maker, between God and, uh, and the person. And then mitzvot ben adam lechavero, between people. We could call those ritual mitzvot and then social mitzvot, I suppose, right? Did you want to add? Let's finish this one and we'll come to that one next. So, so social mitzvot um, include like not murdering. Uh, they also include obligations to the poor, let's say, um, not stealing, you know, all the, the things, and also obligations towards parents and children. Except, as you point out, David, that if we're going to say that the Ten Commandments, and it's really a debate about whether it's Ten Commandments or it's a Dekvach, Ten Ervins, but the fifth one, honor your father and your mother, um, seems to belong in the second set, right? And so we see it as a transitional mitzvah. We'll look at that one in a little more depth in just a moment. Um, but, and God will say, well, you honor them as a way of honoring me, you know, because we are also, like you said, creators. You know, there, there are three partners in the creation of a person, their father, their mother, and God. Okay. Now, we come to this other category that you mentioned, mitzvot asei shehazman grama, and mitzvot asei shehazman grama, or loazman grama. So, positive commandments, which can be done only at a specific time, and then other positive commandments, which can be done at any time. So can someone give an example of a positive commitment that can be done at any time? I love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. The How about you eat, you could eat at any time and then say the blessing before and after your meal, right? Mezuzah, you know, you could put it up any time of day and any time you enter that room, you, you fulfill the mitzvah of mezuzah, okay? And then what would be mitzvot that have to be done on a specific time? Wrapping to fill in, which are only done when? Morning. More, well, daytime, let's say, okay? You're right that the custom is to do it in the morning, except on Tisha B'Av, but, but in general, it's a mitzvah that's in the daytime. And then also, do we do it on Shabbat? No, and not on Yom Tov either, right? In some debate, debate about Cholomoid. So that's right. So to fill in our consider a mitzvah to seisha's man grama. Um, another example of a positive time time-bound commandment, right? The prayers are specific, good. So morning prayers is in the morning, afternoon in the afternoon. What about tomorrow night? Are you guys going to do anything special tomorrow night? Anyone? All right. So lighting candles and and all the mitzvot having to do with Shabbat. And then next week, you know, you could say, well, it's inconvenient to have the seder on Monday night. You know, one one would be more popular to do it on Saturday night, you know, more people use the weekend, right? Wrong, right? So we, the, we actually say, no, this is a mitzvah that has to be done at a certain time, right? Now, um, 
In the Talmud, the rabbis developed a theory, and it seems to be more descriptive than prescriptive. It's more of a description of what the customs of their time seem to be. This is an argument made by a scholar at UVA named Elizabeth Shanks Alexander that when it said that women were exempted from positive time-bound commandments, it wasn't so much a prescription as a description of a pattern that the rabbis noticed. Um, by the way, it's a pattern that is not always uh, applied. Some people have argued that there are more exceptions than applications of that rule. So for example, do women ever light candles on Friday night? Yeah. Isn't that a mitzvah tasei a positive time-bound commandment? The commandment is zachor yom shabbat l'kodshah, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It can only be done on a certain time. It is a positive commandment, and women are obligated to do it. Reading Megillah is another example. Sitting in the sukkah is another example. Uh, participating in the seder and doing all the mitzvot of the seder. Those are all positive time-bound commandments that women are obligated by. Right? So why were women exempted from some of them? And it's still not clear which ones they were exempted from. The Mishnah in uh, Tractate Brachot, chapter 3, Mishnah 3, says that um, women are exempted from the mitzvah of tefillin, right? And it's not and from Kriyat Shema, because they used to say the Shema in a different way than we do it now. In the temple times, they would have somebody sort of call out the Shema, and people would respond, and you need dominion for it. It was done in a very public way, differently than our sort of private recitation. Um, the best theory for why women were exempted from time-bound commandments is a hint. In the mission, it says, Nashim va'avadim uktanim. Women, slaves, and minors are all exempted from positive time-bound commandments. Why women, slaves, and minors? Well, women and slaves had the same status of being socially subjugated in ancient times um, to free men. So, a man could be a master and could say to his slave, go chop some wood. And the slave couldn't say, oh, I didn't daven yet. I gotta go put on my talus and tefillin. Uh, I'll be with you in 45 minutes, right? They're not allowed to do that. They don't have control over their own time. And unfortunately, the way the ancient world set up marriage, that was also true for women. The husband could say, get me a cup of coffee, right? Wash my neck. Things like that, um, those are examples in rabbinic literature. So Professor Judith Houtman, who's a professor, unfortunately, retiring this year of Talmud at JTS, wrote a book called Rereading the Rabbis. It was, she argued that the construction of gender in the ancient world was such that it was set up as a hierarchy. But in an egalitarian culture like we're aspiring towards today, um, women today are not the same as women of ancient times. Men today are not the same. We are sort of constructing and understanding our roles slightly differently. Have we gotten all the way there? Certainly not, right? But, um, but that is kind of an aspiration that we have. And so um, the question then becomes, should women be considered to be exempt from positive time-bound commandments bismanazet today? Um, or should we say that, no, that social reality has expired for those of us who don't live in the ultra-Orthodox world, at least? Right? And so, therefore, we should have an egalitarian ideal. That seems to be a theory. Okay, so those are some of the categories. I'm going to mention one other category, um, de oraita and de rabbanan. When we speak about the mitzvot, we really assume we're talking about the commandments that God gives Israel in the Torah. Right? Brit milah, right? Shabbat, you know, all these things. But... There are some mitzvot which we say are of rabbinic provenance. Right? They're dir rabbanan. They are from the rabbis. The truth is, actually, all of these binaries are false binaries. Right? Uh, uh, let me explain. I'll go backwards. Right? So the problem is that when the rabbis say a mitzvah is de oraita, it doesn't mean that you could actually find the Torah verse and you could read that verse on your own and with your own eyes say, ah, I see that mitzvah. Some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Sometimes the rabbis find evidence from that in what they call a gezei shava or ribui b'lashon, like an extra letter or an extra word, et, you know, which doesn't really mean anything. And they 
they discover there. So a, what the rabbis call a biblical command is what the rabbis say is a biblical command, not necessarily what you would find on your own just doing a naked read, you know, like the Karaites did. On the other hand, some of the commandments that the rabbis came up with, we do consider to be sort of like biblical commands. Like we just had this holiday of Hanukkah a few months ago, which is a post-biblical holiday, it doesn't show up. And yet we said, Asher kichanu You've commanded us with your commandments to light the Hanukkah lights. So where do we get this idea that you could have a post-biblical commandment? That itself is connected to rabbinic authority. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that says, um, you will go to the sage of your time and listen to what they say, and don't stray from it to the right or the left. Lo tasur, don't stray. Right? And so that is like the theoretical source for rabbinic authority. So when the rabbis give you a commandment, they're actually hooking it on to that commandment that they, that they have from the Torah. Um, I told you that all the categories are in, a, in some ways false because a positive commandment and a negative commandment are often mirror images, right? If you, if you don't do the positive, then you, or if you don't do the negative, then you undermine the positive. You know, so if you were to work on Shabbat, you're violating a negative commandment of the Torah, but you also are abandoning the positive commandment of remembering Shabbat. You see how that goes? Um, and even, we've said already, commandments that are social and commandments which are with theological, it's in a way a false binary because the parents are already a middle category. And also, as we'll see, if you oppress the stranger, that's just between people, right? Except God says, I made that person. You know, you're treating them like crap, right? Then you're treating my, my work as poor. There's a story told in the Talmud of a, uh, a rabbi who was kind of ugly. And this guy is riding on his horse and sees this rabbi walking on the, on the road and says, Kama mechuar How disgusting is this person? Right? And this guy looks up at him and, oh no, he just keeps walking. They get to the town and this person, this ugly guy on his feet, is welcomed into the town as the great rabbi, you know, and the guy on the horse feels a little embarrassed and he goes to apologize. And the guy says, you didn't, you didn't insult me. You don't owe me an apology, right? The guy's like, what do you mean? I said this thing to you. I says, yeah, yeah, but I didn't make myself. You insulted God. Why don't you go say to God, you know, you know, how disgusting is this utensil that you made, right? <laughs> Making the point. So oppressing a person hurts that person, but it also damages our relationship with God. It's a type of arrogance, right? Um, right? And so, so all of these binaries are useful, but they also can be overstated. So with that in mind, I want to talk about the ritual, the social, and the communal obligations. And then we'll show you some text. And then I wanted to sort of ask you guys to help me do an audit and to think a little bit you'll see on page three about what would you say is a signature mitzvah of yours, a mitzvah that you do really well, that you can feel pretty good about, you know? And then I'm calling it a value stock, you know, and something which is a undervalued practice that, you know, I've been meaning to get around to that one, I wish I could do that one better, you know, and that you want to sort of emphasize. And to do that in three realms, the realm of ritual, the realm of social ethics, and the realm of community uh, engagement. Does that sound good? All right, that's our task. We've got another half hour or so, so a little more than that. So let's look at some texts here. The first study text I've got is from the Torah itself, from the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, in Hebrew, Aseret HaDvarim. It says in Exodus 20, verse 12, Kabed et avicha v'et imecha, Laman yarichun yamecha al ha'adama, asher adonai elohecha notein lach. So honor your father and your mother, so that you will have long life on the land which the Lord, your God, is giving you. So anything um, unusual about that verse that you notice? 
you notice the order that it says, honor your father and your mother. Um, in Leviticus, in chapter 19, there's a different formulation of this. It says, ish, ish imo va'aviv tira'u. Every person should revere their mother and their father. So the verb there is revere, literally fear. Be afraid of your parents. Now, in the old days when dads would take out the belt buckle, you know, like maybe that was literal, right? But here, the rabbi said, what is morah, what is fear? It means treating them with honor, like um, not sitting in their chair, not contradicting them. You, know, you could imagine you're at the Passover Seder and, and your parent, maybe in this case, maybe one of your kids, um, you say something and they disagree. You know? If they disagree in a gentle way, like, oh, that's a really interesting idea, Dad, but um, have you considered this other way of looking at it? That would be a respectful way. You're an idiot would not be a respectful way, right? Or you're wrong and let me tell you why would not be a very respectful way, right? <laughs> okay, so we all have families, we've all been there. So, um, so it's interesting that in the Ten Commandments, both here and in Deuteronomy, it says, honor your father and your mother. And in Leviticus, it says, fear your mother and your father. The rabbis say, so there are two different natures to this. One is about reverence, and one is about um, kindness or respect. And why the changing order? Why dad before mom for honor, and mom before dad for fear? Anyone have a theory on that? The rabbi's theory, take it or leave it, it doesn't work out this way in, many, in every family. Some families, dad is, is sort of feared, like lays down the line, and mom is the nurturing one who is cherished. Some families are like that. And maybe even more families are like that than the opposite, right? And so if that's the case, then the Torah is making a little corrective. When it comes to kavod, to showing honor, you might feel closer to your mom than to your dad, but honor your dad equally to your mom. And when it comes to fear or reverence, you might feel more reverence towards your father, I'm sorry, towards your, yeah, to your father than your mother, but I'm telling you, no, you should show reverence to your mother, respect her just as much as your father. You see, it's, all right, so those are two things. And then it makes this promise so that you could have a long life on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Does anyone have an explanation about why a long life would be the reward for this? It, it could be very practical that when you have a society where generations are sort of committed to one another, that um, you have a more secure society. You know, um, We're going to say a haftarah this week from Malachi, which ends, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he's going to turn the hearts of the parents toward the children and the hearts of the children toward the parents. So when you've got a family relationship which is strong, right, it certainly can give you long life. I think that maybe on a practical level, you know, I was visiting, I have some family here in town, and um, my cousin is... And he's, he's 71, and his mother's 95, and she's living here in, in Scottsdale with him. And uh, you know, we talked about how he cares for his mother, you know, even with her dementia. You know, and, um, and honoring his mother is actually keeping her alive longer. You know? And um, so maybe that's what it's about. I don't know. So Ramban Nachmanides um, picks up David's point here. Um, Kave, uh, Nachmanides is a medieval rabbi. He, lived in Aragon in, in sort of northeastern Spain and then had to flee uh, during the, uh, the time of the Reconquista when the Christians were in control of Spain again and he wound up being forced to do a disputation with a, a Christian, a new Christian who was a Jewish convert to Christianity and in front of the king. And then he won the debate and had to run for his life even though he'd been given all sorts of guarantees of his protection. And, he wound up in Israel. Anyway, um, in his Torah commentary, he says, uh, honor your father. He 
Here the Torah is now completed. All the things that we're liable, we're obligated for towards our Creator Himself. So having finished that task of the first four commandments, it now goes back and says, and here's the things that you owe other people, other creatures. And it begins from the parent. Because the parent, in respect to their, their progeny, their children, um, is like a creator who participates in the creation. Because God is our first parent, the hamolid, and the, the, the one who gives birth, of the physical parent, is our final parent. And so this idea that, that that's why it's the transitional one, but it is, in fact, a mitzvah between people. All right? Um, and yet, um, I give you the most famous example of a mitzvah between people, v'yahavta l'vecha kamocha, right? love your neighbor as yourself, in the next verse from 1918, and it ends, ani adonai, I am the Lord. So that's something that, it's not incidental. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself, I am God, because if you don't love other people like yourself, then it's in a way undermining God, right? Because it's saying like, well, I'm a self-made man. You're a self-made man. You look out for yourself, I'll look out for myself, right? But when I say that we're both created by God, then I actually have obligations towards you, right? It's like siblings having relations. It doesn't always work out, I don't know. You gave a hint there, but um, you know, like siblings have obligations towards each other which derive from the fact that they are both related to, and have obligations that need to be shared to care for their parents and so on. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Did you want to say something? Uh- Yes, going back to what you said right. earlier about yeah. uh, uh, at Sinai, we heard directly from God mm-hmm. to just the first two commandments. Right. The others were mediated right. by repeating, I am the Lord here, which is the first commandment we heard, mm-hmm. uh, next to one of the other ones that was mediated mm-hmm. elevates its importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. And in fact, Ani Adonai, I'm God is one of the refrains that comes up a lot of times, especially in the book of Leviticus. Um, it's, it seems even in the most social commandments, including the sexual code, right, no incest and so on, it's always emphasizing, I am God. Which led some people to think that maybe what the Torah was concerned about was cultic sex, you know, this idea of a cultic prostitute. It's one of the things that the, the prophets of Israel um, sort of charged their opponents with doing. They go to these temple of Baal, and they have sex, you know, they have these fertility rituals where they have sex with a cultic prostitute, and that's around this time of year in spring to get the fertility back into the earth and so on. There actually is not very much evidence for these things happening back then, right? And so it may be, in fact, that Aniyah deny that refrain, I am the Lord, is simply saying that these commandments are not just nice suggestions. It's not just Rousseau you know, telling us that we need to have a civilization that's not just you know, a wild place with every man for themselves. We need to have a social contract so that people are, are, can rely on one another and have help from one another. But it's actually a theological thing. Social goodness is also theological um, fidelity. Right? So when... You look at the, the gas attack on Syria this week, um, you could say, you know, on a Jewish level, I don't really have anything to say here, but on a secular level, on a humanistic level, how appalling, right? And the rabbis would come back and say, that makes no sense, right? You, you should see that God's children are being killed with this horrible sarin gas, you know, and... Um, and you should feel a Jewish obligation to do something about it. Now, Rav Shmuley put out a statement with a bunch of other rabbis today telling the president to bomb all the Syrian Air Force. Um, I personally, you know, my sense of rabbinic mission is to speak out about the issues, but not necessarily to assume that I know the best military action. But um, 
but you know, that's something we can talk about later. Um, so the next page um, actually just makes this point. Um, you may have heard of Pirkei Avot, the ethics of the fathers, right, or the sages, teachings of the sages sometimes. It's printed in a lot of our prayer books. So that collection of sort of rabbinic epigrams um, is included in the Mishnah, right, um, the first rabbinic book, right, in the end of the tractate dealing with damages, Nizikin, which is like the civil law, and it's like these wise sayings. Well, maybe a century later, another collection sort of expanded on that, and it was also called Avot, right, but instead of Pirkei Avot, it's called Avot de Rebbe Natan, the teachings of Rabbi Natan, and it goes back to Pirkei Avot and it gives broader explanations. Solomon Schechter, you may have heard about, yeah? So Solomon Schechter was a great rabbinic scholar, originally from Romania, then educated in England. He was a rabbi and he was a professor at Cambridge. He was the one who really identified the Geniza in Cairo, and then he came over to New York in 1903 and sort of rebooted what the Jewish Theological Seminary, all right? And he's got a good brand with all these day schools now. But um, his first scholarly book was an edition, a critical edition of Avot de Rabbi Natan. And he found that there were actually two different manuscripts um, of this. The manuscript Aleph, he called Nusra Aleph and Nusra Bet. And they're very different, so he did a critical edition. All right, I digress. So this is from A. Rabbi um, Shimon ben Elazar Omer. So this rabbi says, um, with a great oath was this thing said um, of loving your neighbor as yourself. Ani Adonai, I am the Lord. What does it mean when it says, don't just love your neighbor as yourself, but I am the Lord? Like giving you this sort of, you know, an oath is when you say, I swear by God. Right? Normally you should believe me, but now I want to be sure you believe me. So I'm going to add God's name. I'm going to make it an oath. Right? In general, we're told not to do this. But God is allowed to do it, right? So God sort of makes an oath with God's own name, saying, I, God, created this person. If you show him love, we'll come back to what love means. I can be trusted to give you a good reward. The im love, but if not, you don't show him love. Ani dayan lifroa. I am a judge, and I'm going to punish. Right? So watch out. So you think you're just ripping off your neighbor, right? But God's watching, and God will eventually um, make you pay for it. Um, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Because ohave, we use that word love in English to mean emotion, right? And in prayer, too, be hafta et Adonai Elohecha, right? Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God. Right? Is this lovey-dovey love? Like, um, you know, the violins are playing and you've got flowers in your eyes? Probably not. Um, modern scholars call it covenantal loyalty, right? Love is showing loyalty, saying, okay, God, you want me to put these things on my door? I'll do it. Okay, God, you want me to say these prayers day and night? I'll do it. Okay, God, you want me to teach these words to my kids? I'll do it. It's my way of saying that I will obey you. It's covenantal loyalty. It's not about emotion. Maybe. More like respect. More like respect, right? I'm going to show that this is a real relationship, right? And it is true that in our personal relationships, you know, my wife, you know, I try to make sure that I show that I care for her by doing things, you know, that I, I get the groceries, I do the cooking, whatever it is, you know, make the bed, you know, I'm going to do things that show respect. But if I only do those things and I never say, I love you, I never sort of um, show her a smile, right, that would be a deficient marriage. Would we all agree there was no emotional component? If you were just going through the motions, you know, being a faithful spouse but not a loving spouse? And I think that the modern scholars who said that covenantal loyalty is all that was included in love here um, were understating it, that there is an emotional element to it, right? That God has a chiba yitera, an additional level of love for us. And even 
Love your neighbors yourself, I think, is in only saying, like Hillel said, don't do what's hateful to you. What's hateful to you, don't do to him, you know, the golden rule, right? I think it also means showing a kindness, right? When we meet people, trying to be kind to them. What about when you screw up? Well, we all screw up. All right, first in line here, right? So, first to admit it. But um, when we screw up in a mitzvah between us and God, so we can try to stop screwing up. Maybe I used to eat non-kosher and I stopped eating it, right? And I feel bad about that. And then I gum on Yom Kippur and I say, God, I'm sorry. You know, I was tempted, whatever. I was lazy, whatever. I just didn't care too much about it. Now I care more. I'm going to commit to do better by you. So that is one type of sin. But what if we had a fight, you know? And what if I wronged you in some way? Right? And I feel bad about it. So on Yom Kippur, I stand before God. I say, you know, um, I'm so sorry. You know, I really screwed up. And please forgive me, God. So how does that work? Right, right. Because, um, because God says, you know, like, work it out with Michael. Then you'll be able to, you know, once you've done that, then we can talk. Right? And so that's what this Mishnah is saying here. Um, this is a very famous mission for Yom Kippur. Haomer um, If a person says, you know what, I'm going to sin, then I'll repent, then I'll sin, and then I'll repent. Right? Just one more time. Right? Um, they don't give him, he won't figure out, he won't succeed. Right? You have to actually say, I'm done with that. Right? You know, a gambler can't say, well, I'll only gamble, you know, once a week now. If they're really out of control, right? Um, so what about if they say, I'm going to sin v'yom ha-kippur mechaper. En yom ha-kippur mechaper. It doesn't work that way. If I say, oh, you know, good news. Next week is yom kippur, so I'm going to eat that bacon double cheeseburger, right? And then, and then good news, like next week I can say I'm sorry and, and I'm clean, right? No, so it doesn't work that way, right? Then the next words, second line, third word, Averot, Shebein Adam Lemakom, transgressions between a person and God, Yom Kippurim Mechaper. Then on, for those, yes, Yom Kippur can, can atone. Averot, Shebein Adam Lechavero, but transgressions between people, Ein Yom Kippurim Mechaper. Yom Kippur does not atone for Ad until Shiyirtse Chavero until you've appeased your neighbor. So if I did harm you, and I hope I haven't yet, we've only known each other for a few minutes, but I'd have to say, Michael, I'm so sorry about what happened there, and um, will you forgive me? And if you say yes, I go, whew, okay, I'll really try to do better. And then I'm not completely clean yet. Then I go to God and I say, you know, this past year I acted like a jerk a bunch, you know, and I, I, was, uh, I was insensitive, you know, and um, I've tried my best to make it up to the people around me, but I'm also telling you, God, that I, I feel embarrassed by that. That would be what's called tshuva gemara, you know, like a complete atonement. If there were a temple, there'd be one more step. Then you'd have to bring a korban, a sacrifice called a, a sham, right, a, a sin offering or a chatat. All right. Um, we just read about the offerings. Yes, yes. And for the first, well, I may have noticed it before, but I didn't Right. That the, the sin offerings mm -hmm. are for unintentional sin. Right. Some of them are shkaga. Okay. Some of them are. Right. Okay. Some of them are to, yeah. for uh, repentance if, if it was a sin that you actually knew you did. Right. It wasn't unintentional. Okay. Yeah. You'll see it says um, when a person sins, then they do this thing. And then it says im geg, right? Or ki bishkaga. Uh, right, when he does it by, by accident, you know. Um, and then it gives several categories of accident. Um, so a, a priest, um, an individual, and then kol ha'am, it speaks about it. If all the people uh, sin unintentionally. I just wrote an article about that one last week because um, how does the whole people sin, you know? Um, so... Actually, interestingly, the rabbis say, well, it doesn't really mean all the people. It means the Sanhedrin. Uh, it means the high court. 
because the high court is the people. You know, like uh, even today we say the people against so and so for criminal cases, right? So um, I, they say, well, it's when you have a court that itself messes up the law, and then they teach everybody. They say, oh, you don't have to eat. Uh, you don't have to eat matzah anymore. You know, that mitzvah's gone, right? They, they sort of mislead the people, right? So um, uh, it's a bit tricky because if one rabbi says the wrong thing and another rabbi follows along, that rabbi was supposed to object. You know, it's like a malpractice type of thing. But you don't want to be the only person who's calling the problem because then you could be deemed a zakein mamre, like a rebellious elder, and that's not a good position to be in. That's like a stone, that's a Bob Dylan, everyone must get stoned type of thing. So, um, yeah. They, so that's the rabbis being legalistic about that. Uh, I also read a really interesting Kabbalistic idea about it, that um, the whole people sinning has to do with um, the original sin in the Garden of Eden that led to gender distinction. You know, the first human was created Zachar Unakeva, as in uh, an androgynous being. The rabbis called it Du Partsuf. He had uh, a female side and a male side on one body, you know, and then God split them. And the, the, the Zohar said last week on Parshat Vayikra that what you want to be is Shalem uh, whole before God, you know. And that means that somehow to reclaim, men should be reclaiming the feminine side and women should be claiming the masculine side. You know, that there's this element of gender division which is not entirely healthy, that we may have overdone it, you know, the binary. It's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about issues of transgender people lately. Um, I went to a conference at Harvard last week about transgender and uh, religious law. That was quite interesting. But I digress quite far. Um, but you're right about the, the, um, the accidental. Now, if you, certain sins, if you do bemazed intentionally, which is the opposite of bishogeg, accidentally, then if you did it with um, warning, like you were warned before it, that don't you know that's a capital crime? And then you go ahead and say, I know, and I know what the punishment of it is, but I'm doing it anyway then in that case, it's a death penalty type of situation. And then you can't bring a sacrifice. You know? So in that case, you might be trying to prove that it was Bishogeg, you know, in which case you get off with you know, a sacrifice and maybe a whipping. Yeah, you don't really want to live in that world exactly. You know? And one of our questions is, what do we do with all that stuff? Now, I'm going to run out of time here, so I'll just show you a couple of quick other things. Humiliating a person. So in that D there on page two, the rabbis create many categories of interpersonal ethics going well beyond property rights. We're obligated to honor other people, to save them from shame, and are told that humiliation is akin to murder. This is a very famous rabbinic statement in the Talmud in Bava Metzia. Um, Tani Kama, uh, I'm sorry, Tani Tana Kame de Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, Koha Malbin Pene Chavero, Barabim Ki'ilu Shofech Damim. Whoever makes their neighbor's face white, blanch, right? Um, in public, it's as if they've killed them. Um, now, when people die, they literally lose their color, you know. I don't know, I mean, if you've been around corpses, but I do, I'm in a Hebra Kedisha, you know, and, and people are very pale when they die. They lose their color. And so, but also sometimes people get red in the face when they're embarrassed, but there's, I guess the rabbis felt red in the face is like a little embarrassed, white in the face is really embarrassed, like you've almost... And it's like you've sort of killed them a little bit. Now, it's a temporary death. They come back. They get over it usually, um, although not always. You know, we have, unfortunately, many cases of people who publicly humiliated and then commit suicide, in which case you'd have to say, you know, um, is there any liability for the person? You know, like I, I think of that, that case in Rutgers a few years ago where the, um, the roommate sort of uh, surreptitiously videotaped his roommate having sex with another man and then posted it on Facebook and says, I can't believe what he's doing. And then the guy jumped off the bridge of the GW. So, um, so yeah, sometimes it's literally true right, that it's like murder. Usually we think of this as Guzma as being a little bit of a, uh, an exaggeration. Um, and then this last one I really love. I want to make sure you saw this one. Um, 
Which is worse, being bad to another person or being bad to God? You'd think that being bad to God, you know, like God is the source of all being, our creator, right? But um, this text has it say that God would almost prefer that we do avodazara, we, we uh, worship idols, that is, do the worst thing you could do to God as long as we're nice to each other. But when we're bad to each other, that really ticks God off, right? So I like this one. So Rabbi Elazar Benoshel, Rabbi Elazar Kafar Omer, this rabbi in the of that rabbi says, Gadol HaShalom, great is the value of peace. She'afilu Yisrael of v'shalom because even if the Jewish people are worshiping idols, but they're at peace with one another, Kiviyachol, it's as if, Amar HaMakom, God says, Ein hasatan I'm not letting Satan loose on them. Shneemar, Chavur Atzavim Ephraim Hanachlo. Because there's this verse in the prophet Hosea that says, you know, that Ephraim, which is the great uh, tribe of, of the north, is um, addicted to images, it says, um, but I'm going to leave them be. Aval mish nechleku, but when they divide against each other, um, their hearts are divided, now they will be um, guilty. All right, now I'll feel his guilt. So I was trying to share with these texts a little bit of the different categories. So I want to make sure, like, just to reiterate that, we spoke about how the 613 commandments you could never open the Torah, start at Genesis 1, go through Deuteronomy, come up with 613. In fact, one of the great debates in the Middle Ages was, all right, there's 613, what are they? <laughs> right? And so some of the great named sages wrote books called Sefer HaMitzvot. So Maimonides, Rambam, wrote a Sefer HaMitzvot, and he listed them. Nachmanides, Ramban, wrote a Hasagot. He wrote his rejoinders, like, no, that's not a mitzvah. This is a mitzvah, right? And so everyone agreed on the total number, but very few people. So I'm telling you, I think the number comes first from these word plays, and then they try to figure them out, and they try to come up with this 248 positives and 365 negatives, all because of these midrashic purposes, and then they sort of, it's a case of the law following the legend, right? There's, uh, there's a new academic field, and any of you lawyers, no? uh, called uh, Law's Stories, or Narrative and Law. There was a great scholar at, at Yale, um, Yale, the dean of Yale Law School many years ago, Robert Cover, love Hashem, wrote this article called Nomos and Narrative. Nomos being laws and narrative being stories. Saying that the stories we tell sometimes explain the laws that we have. But sometimes the stories we tell actually generate this, the laws that we have. They are jurist-generative. They create laws, right? So we all know that we care about this value, and therefore we create laws that reflect that value. Whereas sometimes it's the opposite. We all know that we Americans do these things. We're not sure why we do those things. We're going to come up with a good explanation. We've got both of those in Judaism. Yeah, there's a rationalization. Um, and whenever the rabbis give you three explanations of why we do something, right, then you know that they're, it's not a negative thing. They, they accept the authority of the custom, but now they want to get meaning out of it. I'll give an example. Kitniot, right? Legumes, right? Ashkenazi Jews are said not to eat kitniot. Um, and I know this is a digression, but it's coming up to Passover, so I'll say it quickly. Um, why is that? Well, in the Torah, it says matzot tochlu. You should eat matzot, plural. Right? The rabbis say, it says plural. How many things can you use to make matzah? That would imply many different, there could be oat matzah, there could be rye matzah, there could be wheat matzah. Is there any um, end to that? And in the earliest Midrash, the Michilta, and then again in the Talmud, they say, yes, there's a limit. There are only five grains Right? Wheat, and barley, and oats, and spelt, and rye. Those, that's it. Those five grains you can use to make matzah. And on those five grains, if you allow it to go too long, right, after being dampened, right, they become chametz. Right? You can't make matzah out of something which doesn't become chametz, because then what? You wouldn't have to rush. 
Right? The, the whole idea of making matzah is that you have to speed the process and re-experience um, the chipazon, the, the haste of leaving Egypt. So then, in the Talmud, they say, and this excludes other things that you could grind up and make a cracker out of, right? Such as beans and rice and chickpeas and things like that, right? Peas, right? All these things. So um, there was one rabbi of the Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, who said, no, oriz min kitniot hu, min dagan hu, al chimutso. He says, no, rice is a type of grain, right? And we are liable for it becoming chametz. His is a minority opinion, which has not really been accepted in Jewish history, although he was right. Um, because rice, like wheat and barley, is a cereal. Right? It's a grass right, that has the same form of the plant, you know, and it too, you know, you're going to break the grains off. And Maimonides says you could crush it up, wet it, knead it, cover it with a, fl- with a, a cloth, and it can puff up. And Maimonides, though, says that is not chametz, it's sirchon, it's just rotted, rotten. Right? And so you could make rice bread, according to Maimonides. But, so the Sephardim continued with the ancient custom of eating rice and beans. The Ashkenazim, sometime in the Middle Ages, stopped eating rice and beans on Passover. Why? Fourteen explanations were found by Rabbi David Kalinkin uh, of Jerusalem. And they vary from things like, well, they used to use dry goods stores with burlap stacks, and you know the burlap sack would have wheat in it one month, and then they'd empty it out, and they'd put lentils in it, and maybe one grain of wheat would be caught in the strands of the burlap sack. And you know that with chametz, you're liable even with the smallest amount. And so they were being careful, this and that are similar looking, and they both, maybe. There's one theory that it's just considered a food of sorrow, it's an ochel shel avelut, that we eat lentils and beans uh, in, the, in, the, in the shiva house. You know. Why am I saying this? So this is an example of a mitzvah, which isn't really a mitzvah, it's a custom, and we don't have one explanation, we have 14. And so some people are saying today, um, in the conservative movement, we, we sort of made a statement about this last year, that although the custom is established in Ashkenazi homes not to eat beans and rice, and many people may, in fact, want to keep their parental custom. Um, there's plenty of evidence that this seems to be an excessive stringency that sort of developed with time. And in our day, there are some arguments against it. First of all, um, there's more mingling of Ashkenazim and Sephardim, especially in Israel, right? And so how do you, dividing up the houses of Israel, you know, is, is not so practical and it's not so nice either. You get invited to someone's house, well, I don't eat that. You can embarrass your host, there's that. Also, there are more people who are eating plant-based diets today and not meat-based diets, you know. And so on Passover, if you don't eat meat, right, and especially if you're vegan, you don't eat eggs or dairy, right, you're really in trouble getting your, um, especially getting your proteins, you know. And so having access to rice and beans would be a way to have, you know, that kind of a diet would be supported. Um, And maybe that's healthy. And some people would say we should just not do that Custom because it was a mistaken custom, you know, and we should, it distracts people from the essential prohibition, which is on chametz, right? Okay, I wanted to end with this. Um, we're not going to do this as a workshop right now, but it's something that if you want to take homework, you know, and think about for yourself or use this in your own teaching, um, I, I broke it into rich theological, social, and communal. So, theological. Mitzvot that focus on the human-divine relationship include prayer, Shabbat festivals, uh, Brit Milah, and so on. These are the foundation of Jewish identity, what distinguishes piety from humanism. In other words, uh, you can be a secular person who volunteers in the soup kitchen, right? Um, and, but doing these things say that, well, I'm actually worshiping God. You can work in the soup kitchen in a religious way, too, of course. So what would you say is a signature mitzvah of yours in this regard? What are you good at in terms of the ritual side of Judaism? And what's some place that you'd like to grow in? So I'm not going to ask you to share that now, although if you want to, you can. Um, likewise with social ethics. Um, I quoted the uh, philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, 
who was a great uh, French-Jewish philosopher, and he spoke about finding the face of God in the face of our other people, of our next door neighbor, right? So you see someone, you look in their face, and this is maybe harder for those of us who live in the city, I don't know. Like, I, I walk by people living on the street every day, you know, and they ask me for help, and sometimes I give and sometimes I don't. And if I don't hand a person a dollar or stop and buy them a sandwich or whatever, you know, have I just disrespected God? You know, it's hard, right? When you live in a suburban setting where you're mostly in the car driving, you know, you don't have to come face to face with people as much, but even here I suppose you, you must sometimes. Well, but some, sometimes what you want to do also is talk to the person, you know, and um, like, Hi, I'm Danny, what's your name, um, how are you doing, you know, that kind of thing. Because I find that I often, I'm in a hurry, so I might give them an apple or something, but I'm on my way, you know, and just slow down and, and make that connection. Sometimes, sometimes it's not what they want, you know, you have to be like in anything sensitive. Um, and then community, um, you know, uh, obviously there are certain mitzvot that Judaism can only be done in a public setting, like davening, you know, the, our liturgy reading Torah from a scroll, you need a minion for that. And, um, and we're told that Jews have an obligation to establish resources, you know, a mikvah, a soup kitchen, actually, like your, your friend uh, did. Um, or not a soup kitchen, that's an old expression, but a pantry, food pantry, whatever, um, or a shelter. And um, so communal obligations, and there too. So do people find that this is like a useful framework for um, thinking, sort of doing a little um, assessment, a self-assessment, you know? All right, does anyone want to share something that they, they, they do consider, something they want to work on or, you know? I, I barely know you guys, so I don't feel like I should be uh, probing too much, but I'll say for me that um, a mitzvah that's sort of a signature of mine is davening. I'm good at that. You know, like I, I put on my tassel every morning, you know, I say my prayers, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. Um, but a lack for me is, is doing it with, um, with proper intention. You know, for me, it's often like just going through the motions. And so I, it's something I really want to work on for myself, you know. And, um, and on the social level, you know, I feel like, uh, well, we're all busy. I feel very busy. But um, there are things that I, I value doing which I don't do enough. Like we have a homeless shelter in my synagogue every night of the year. And uh, I sleep there once in a while. Every few months, I'll staff it. But I feel like I should become a regular, try to do that on a monthly basis. I, I give blood once or twice a year, but I, I'm allowed to give it every five weeks. You know, and, I, you know, and I, I'm busy, you know, and it's across town. And, you know, and, but um, I feel like that's something that I could be doing more of. People really need that. So um, yeah, those are examples for me. Um, so I wanted to end with... Uh, Ooh, we're a little over time. So I want to end just showing you the last page of the handout is um, the fullest description of Passover that we have in the Torah uh, in terms of how it's to be observed. Um, Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But if you do read it, you'll see that there are a lot of rituals involved with Passover. But at the end, it sort of morphs into the social obligations. So the rituals are things like having the paschal sacrifice, not eating chametz, yes, eating matzah, remembering, um, getting rid of all the chametz in your house, um, don't leaving the meat overnight of the Passover lamb, but eating it all, don't eating it in any place, but taking it to Jerusalem, right? That's where you have to do the Passover sacrifice. Don't do it at any time, but at night, between the 14th and the 15th of the late afternoon, right? Um, and, and so on. Um, and then eating uh, the matzahs for six days, making the seventh day, which for us is seventh and eighth days, a special day. And then in verse 9, counting the seven weeks, which is the counting of the Omer, which you know is a separate mitzvah, um, and then keeping the holiday of Shavuot, which is really an end to Passover. And then um, in verse 11, it switches and it says, you should rejoice before the Lord your God. The rabbi said that means eat a happy meal. Um, no, not one of those ones, but uh, 
the Simcha offering was the uh, Korban Shlamim, uh, sort of a peace offering that was brought at the temple, right? And you should eat it, you and your son and your daughter and your servant and your male servant, female servant, and the Levite who is in your gates, and the stranger, and the orphan, and the, um, the widow who are in your midst in the place which the Lord God. Right? You should remember what God, that you were a servant. And so this final part is sort of building social solidarity between people who have resources and people who don't have resources. And so um, I hope that as we get into Passover, um, we'll feel the strength of all three of these things, the, the rituals by keeping our Passover Seder and doing, getting rid of the chametz in our life, you know, both the physical chametz and the spiritual chametz of, of arrogance and so on, of eating matzah and doing all the rituals. Also, giving charity to the poor. There's a mitzvah right now of ma'od chitim, of giving uh, money to the poor so that they can help have seders and even the non-Jewish poor, of being hospitable to others and doing it all together um, so that we can together feel God's presence in our lives. That is what I wanted to share. I wish you all a chag kasher v'sameach, a kosher and a happy festival. Thank you for coming. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybatemadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.